Hello, my name is Beverly Chandler and I welcome you to the first outing for Off the Record, the podcast about all things ETF brought to you by ETF Express in partnership with Trust Edge, providers of front, middle and back office software and services to ETF issuers. All views expressed in this podcast are the speaker's own and we hope suitably controversial. The ETF industry has enjoyed enormous growth in assets in its short life. We're recording this around the 33rd birthday of the first ETF on the Toronto Stock Exchange. So happy birthday to ETFs generally, while State State Street Spy has just enjoyed its 30th birthday since launch in the US. Assets in the global ETF sector have hovered to just under $10 trillion for the past year in what was universally declared to be an extraordinary year, but apparently one that suited ETFs. In this inaugural outing for the ETF Express podcast, Off the Record, I bring you a team, including me, whose combined years of experience of observing, commenting and analysing the asset manager industry are probably longer than the ETF industry itself. So I'm here with Detlef Glow, head of Lipper Amir Research and Refinitiv, an LSEG business. He joined the firm in 2005. And then we have Athanasios Sarafagas, Athan, who is an ETF analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence and covers the industry globally with a particular focus on Europe. We're just going to discuss how this industry has grown from the perspective of professional observers. Detlev, can we just start with, if you could tell me how long you've been monitoring the ETF industry in Europe? Yes, of course. Hello, and thank you for having me. Um, Actually, I don't want to say I'm a founding member of the industry, but when the first ETFs appeared in Europe in 2000, I was head of research for a wealth management company, and we ran some funder funds, and obviously the sales guys approached us with their new products. And uh, after the meeting, um, I said, to my fellow colleague and lead portfolio manager, why do we need ETFs? What are these things are for? Uh, does it make any sense? And actually, the my lead portfolio manager, our lead portfolio manager, was uh, from the US, and he was used to trade ETFs. And then he explains to me all the uh, benefits we can have in the asset management from ETFs, and uh, I adopted that to my approach. And when I went to uh, my next employee, Ferry. Um, we also started to use ETFs. And when I moved over in 2005 to, um, at that point, Lipper as a Reuters company, um, we started immediately to publish ETF reports on the European ETF industry. So uh, I'm with the ETF industry since the beginning in Europe. And Ethan, um, if you'd like to tell me about how long you've been monitoring ETFs in Europe. Yeah, I'd be happy to. And thanks for having me on this inaugural podcast. Uh, I've been with Bloomberg for five years, so covering Europe there for about four of those five years. But in previous jobs, I worked with uh, I worked at an ETF provider and an index provider, and we had a European business as well alongside a U.S. one. So um, while maybe not fully in the European uh, coverage until I got to Bloomberg, I've always sort of uh, been around product launches globally. Uh, and I've always, you know, have had exposure to the European market. And so let's just start with Detlef and tell me about trends you've seen on the growth of the European industry over the longer term. Well, I mean, the, the first trend we see was um, diversification of product ranges and asset types. So when we started, we only had um, 
ETFs on a single index, equity index, um, it went very fast that the, the index coverage in the, ETF, in the equity space expanded. In 2003, we had the first bond ETF, um, which then actually laid the growth roots for the trends towards bond ETFs. But what was really remarkable was that um, a lot of these, these um, equity ETFs then started to get very, very granular. So we saw the launch of sector ETFs globally, and then we saw sector ETFs focusing on single sectors in Europe um, or in other regions of the world. So um, the ETF industry at that point expected that uh, institutional investors will pick up ETFs as portfolio management tools, which they at that point of time obviously not did. Um, and so we saw a big wave of launches and afterwards also a big wave of closures of, of these products. Um, and in the in the ongoing time, we saw, as I already mentioned, the trend toward bond ETF. And now the, the newest trend is in the direction um, of ESG products. Um, I, I might have forgotten the smart beta trend, um, which is also still go, going on. So there's a lot of stuff going on in the ETF industry. And I think this is really the salt and the pepper in the, in the asset management soup, because the ETF industry is very, very innovative and brings out products which you mostly can't um, make um, in, in the active management space because it would demand so much effort to get those products going. I'm loving the seasoning approach for the ETFs. I think that's very cool. Ethan, do you want to comment on um, ETF seasoning or not, but also your observation of the taking take up of European of ETFs in Europe generally? Yeah, it's it's been really interesting industry to cover because I think everyone always puts it in context in the US. So it's always oh the way the US does this, it must work in Europe. But I think people need to realize that it's obviously a very different market. But I think that left nailed it in that the the products that have been coming out over the last couple of years have really been able to narrow down different exposures. Now, obviously, ESG is taking up a lot of time and uh, attention, uh, both you know in a good way and a bad way. We can talk about this more, I think, you you, you know later on. But uh, that's obviously been a really big focus uh, as well, and just more competition. You know, over the last couple of years, there's been a lot of new issuers that have come into the market, both U.S. firms or asset managers in Europe that are looking to now launch through the ETF. I think that's something that might continue, you know, whether they want to come in through active or, or something like that. But product proliferation has for sure been one of the, the biggest trends. But also just when we maybe thought the industry would plateau, like, you know, lap 21, 2021 was record flows, record trading. So the adoption is, you know, the products are there, but now the adoption is really starting to gain some traction. So I thought that was really interesting. And this was globally, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of products, but the adoption is really starting to pick up. Um, and I think the trading side really is a really important testament to the, to the wrapper and investor being comfortable with that wrapper. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a long, it seems like a very long road that's now all starting to cultivate and come together now. 
I agree. It feels like a long road to me as well. The um, the problems that face us in Europe. Let's just we have to look at this um, retrocession. It's been called the cancer of the ETF industry, and now, of course, finally we have some small steps possibly to being dealt with. Uh, Detlef, do you want to explain what retrocession is, and then we can talk about it a bit more? Well, retrocession is a payment from um, actually in this case a mutual fund to the advisor who sold it um, to the end investor. Um, these advisor can either be a bank or an independent financial advisor. Um, so they make a bit of their income um, out of these retrocessions. And obviously, um, these retrocessions leads to higher management fees because somebody um, has to pay for it. Therefore, the investor pays um, the advisor on an annual basis via retrocessions. And not applicable in the case of ETFs. Right, because the management fees, I mean, if you have an, an um, S&P 500 ETF, for example, with a management fee of below 10 basis points, there's no room to pay a retrocession in there. Um, and most of the ETFs are very cost efficient. And I think there's been a study that showed that products where inducements are paid are on average 35% more expensive. And so this is something that's got to be addressed. And um, would you like to comment on it, Ethan? I think there's been a, an initiative at the European level. <laughs> yeah, there is. A, the European Commission, I think, came out and really wants to, you know, look at this very closely. Um, there's been a couple of regions that have sort of banned it, right, like the UK and whatnot. But all that said, when you look at the retrocession fees or maybe that ETFs aren't maybe as tax efficient as they are in some other regions – ETFs in Europe are still growing in the face of all that. That's what I find is so impressive when you put it in that context that they're facing all of this and they're still growing. I just imagine when that retrocession, if ever, that gets pulled out. I just think that's going to be a huge boon for growth. Um, so I think it's definitely something, you know, the distribution side is definitely really important to keep uh, monitoring. But and that's, you know, even within the industry, you see a focus on lower costs, right? And so, you know, Vanguard, even though they're smaller, have a pretty small market share, they're growing very quickly, or you see flows towards some of the cheapest products. Um, so when that retrocession wall comes down, I think that's going to be a really big tailwind for the industry, which is already growing, which is so I always find it impressive, that it's able to grow in the face of a lot of that quite limiting um, legislation. I think we did a story about Spain, which has got um, a tax advantage for mutual funds. And uh, investors can move between mutual funds and not realise a capital gain, which gives them, them the edge very easily. But um, it'll be interesting to see. The same, the same is true for, for Ireland. I mean, oh, really? Yeah, On the, I, I did so not know that. In Ireland, you've got a tax disadvantage as investor for ETFs, and they're going to work on that. So the EU and the, the single countries, not the EU itself, um, has to work on their tax schemes to um, make equal tax payments between stocks, um, ETFs, and mutual funds. Um, and that will be also another boost for the ETF industry. I'm pretty sure about that. And I would assume a higher boost than the, the cut in retrocessions. Because Ethan already has um, very well observed, um, we are, the industry is growing despite all the, the, the retrocessions and that stuff. So. Thank you. I'm going to go on now, actually, to consolidated tape because the two subjects are kind of linked, really. Um, so we have more news from Europe, thank God. <laughs> Those of us who don't actually belong to Europe anymore. 
you can observe from a distance, but we've got this um, initiative from the 14 European exchange groups to create a consolidated tape. Ethan, this is your chance to explain and, <laughs> and uh, comment, please. What is yeah, it? It's, yeah, it could be quite frustrating. And I think this is probably one of the bigger reasons why the market tends to be a little skewed towards the institutional side. And it's just it could be frustrating because it's very difficult to get this data, right? And I'm even, I even have a Bloomberg terminal and it's very hard to track that data, right? And there are some interesting data providers that are trying to get this, uh, this data out to the investors, but it's very hard to get. And I can see that as an investor, that's very frustrating, right? And uh, I think that, you know, this has been a unicorn that they've been chasing for a long time, right? I, I don't know how many times we've heard consolidated tape. It'd be, you know, nice to have some sort of tool or something very for investors to very easily compare liquidity, whether it's at, you know, again, at the consolidated level or through pockets, through different regions. Uh, this would be again, a, another big boon as well, along with the retrocession fees, uh, you know, I remain sort of split on it. You know, they've talked about it for a long time. It's nice to now see all the exchanges get together and there's this really big push for it. So maybe I'm a little bit more optimistic on it happening. But um, yeah, I think that's, it's definitely one, one thing that needs to be addressed for sure. And left, what, what, what's your view on consolidated tape? I think it will be helpful in the markets to view liquidity. Um, it will support the ETF industry as people then see what actually is going on and not the fragmented view. Um, but nevertheless, as long as we have all these fragmented exchanges and you can't cross trade um, from one exchange to another uh, due to different clearing systems, um, it's not very helpful. I mean, you see an ETF, it's traded on, on etc. Um, for a higher price than um, on Euro uh, next. Uh, you, you can't make anything out of this information um, just because you can't go short on one and long on the other because you don't have uh, the, the possibility to net your book yet. And so do you think going forwards there'll be more developments that will help defragment Europe? That's a very, very good question. I mean, um, <laughs> the, the uh, EU talks about the capital market union uh, but nevertheless, the exchanges are, are private um, companies, so they would need to adopt. But I could imagine a world um, where you see closer cooperations between the, the different exchanges. As they are commercial entities, sometimes it's easy to forget that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, every, every exchange has their own clearinghouse, yeah? Yeah, um, yeah, and and uh, therefore their own uh, ecosystem for the trades. Um, that's 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 one point, and you don't want to consolidate this because you want to have the competition. Uh, but on the other hand, side as an investor, you want to take profit if someone is mispriced on one exchange while it's uh, good priced on the on the other exchange. Yeah? And let's just look, because actually that would imply an active investor, and that was something else we were just going to look at today, is that there seems to be this year a rise in launches in active ETFs. We've had the um, the, the firm that has um, given up vowels, Aberdeen, which has launched, come into it finally in the UK and has launched its active real estate product. And then I wrote last week about Investlinks on the Italian Borsa, which has launched an actively managed uh, portfolio. 
Um, Detlef, tell me your thoughts. Are, should ETFs be this active? I think so. I mean, um, the ETF itself is just a distribution wrapper. And you can wrap anything which is under the, the fund regulation. So any usage fund could be wrapped into, into an ETF. Um, the big question here is when will the um, EU or ESMA give up on the uh, transparency requirements? Because ETFs have much higher transparency requirements than mutual funds. So first thing is you have to ask why. Um, we know it is because of the trading uh, and the efficient pricing. Um, but active managers could unveil their holdings and um, make efficient trading possible. And I've just posted last week a, uh, my Friday facts on, on that topic. Um, and actually, Paul Hoffermann um, put a long answer under my post saying uh, he is speaking with a lot of active managers, asked them to join and via a white label platform. And he sees that the more innovative active managers have no issues with um, unveiling their holdings or disclose their holdings to the investors, um, which is a good sign. And I, I see this step when the active managers start to use ETFs as distribution wrapper, I see it the next big growth initiative for the ETF industry in Europe. Another big growth initiative. And um, Ethan, of course, in the US, you have your semi-transparent structure, which we don't have in Europe. But tell me, um, do you think that will come or something like it will come in Europe? Yeah, it's it's a little, it's a complicated answer because one, I think active is a little bit more accepted in Europe than, let's say, in, in the US. And what I mean by that is that the active non-transparent stuff hasn't done well in the US in terms of asset raising. But a big driver in the U.S. market for active is taxes, right? And after the SEC ETF rule, active ETFs became even more tax efficient than they were. So that's a really big dis driver for a lot of the conversions that are happening for invest or these firms wanting to move into active ETFs. When you don't have that in Europe, I don't know how much there is that incentive, right? And so, but I think it's going to be, I think it'll be definitely a way to get some asset managers into the ETF industry, whether it's non-transparent or not, I think it's going to be at least one way to get them in. So I'm very happy about that. I don't know how, how much the uptick will be just because the tax is such a big driver of it. Right. Um, and so again, when that goes away, is it just more of a cost issue? If I can offer it at a lower price, I think that, that definitely could be advantageous, but, um, like that left said, when you sort of look at the white space next, you know, we've done factors, we've done thematics, we've done ESG. Active is sort of the next white space. So um, I think that's definitely going to be a big focus for sure. And I, I came to ETFs from the hedge fund industry where it was two and 20 all those years ago. Not quite the same now, but certainly considerably more expensive, very much more active than an average ETF. But um, there's, a, there's a nice big gulf in there in the middle, which just some sort of fee could be found, surely. This is a talk about ETFs. We have to talk about um, ESG because, of course, it's um, the biggest driver in the industry at the moment. Um, Detlef, talk to me. I keep saying, um, I'll stop saying, um, Detlef, talk to me about ESG. <laughs> well, ESG, the hot topic in Europe. Um, and we had the introduction of, of SFDR. And literally last year, everybody had a, um, let's say, a light, more, more light view 
on um, the rules and guidelines, which hasn't been published at that point of time, um, they need to fulfill to belong to Article 8 or Article 9. And at the beginning of Q4, everybody got shocked because the regulatory technical standards were issued and um, and the ETF promoters and the index providers found out that even if you track the highest standard benchmark, so an EU climate benchmark, um, you will not be eligible to be an Article 9 ETF um, or an Article 9 product in general um, because you have to fulfill other um, um, rules to to go under Article 9. So we saw a massive, really a massive um, reclassification, if you want to call it that way, from Article 9 to Article 8 and from Article 8 to Article 6. And also a very few uh, mutual funds that moved up from Article 6 to Article 8. Um, so that there, there was a lot of confusion, let's say it that way, um, just because the regulatory regulatory technical standards have has not, not been published um, at the same date when the um, SFDR requirements have been published. So, um, again, there, there was a lot of, of reclassification. I had a very nice talk with one of my friends at that time, and uh, he asked me, well, you as an ETF specialist, um, will there be any ET- uh, Article 9 ETF be left at the 1st of January 2023. Uh, and yes, there were a few. <laughs> so, Ethan, I quoted you at an event in January, some research you'd done, and I can't actually remember now, but I know it was really, really intelligent. It was about, the, um, I think, the watering down that's happened because of this new regulation. So remind me what you, what you found. Yeah, I mean, one thing that we've tracked quite a bit was obviously the... the classification that everyone gave themselves. But to Delev's point, it was sort of just lack of guidance from the regulators. So I think a year ago, there was almost three or 4% of the ETFs were Article 9s. That's down to less than 1% now because of all these rebrands. And so it's it's interesting because I'm sure a lot of people or investors were allocating based on that classification, right? And now all of a sudden they get stripped away and you're like, oh wait, now I'm matching an Article 8 fund versus a 9 fund. And so what we're trying to track now is the one the nines that actually do come out of this, are they in a better position and do they actually end up taking money after, you know, after all this, um, all these rebrands? But he put it a nice way. It's confusing because these rebrands, you know, I think there's a lot of also reputational risk to it, right? You're coming in as this fund and now you're being taken back. Uh, so it's something we track very closely, um, you know, and there was a, pretty big splattering of ESG launches over the last like two years, something like 50, 60% of new launches had some sort of um, ESG metric to them. And then that's not counting all the rebrands. So funds that were not ESG, they added some sort of ESG screen and now all of a sudden they become article eight funds. Uh, and it, be- it becomes actually a nightmare to track historically because you're like, well, this is an article eight fund today, but it wasn't an article eight fund five years ago. Green apples with green apples. Right, exactly. And you're going through it and you're like, oh my, there's no easy way to, to track all of this. So it's definitely, I think, the, the yeah, it definitely has added a lot of confusion over, you know, the last year or so. Uh, but it's something that we track re- very closely. And I don't know now, you know, how hesitant, you know, fund houses are going to be to give themselves a nine, you know, classification versus, you know, does everything just get grouped into eight? But then does that really tell you anything anymore, right? If everyone's just sort of falling into the same category. 
There must be a con. I mean, obviously, everybody is terrified of being accused of greenwashing. That that's the word that we haven't said, and that um, people are terrified of. Um, they, we did a study. Uh, we interviewed uh, ESG Quantigo, uh, sorry Quantigo, um, talking about ESG appetite, and of course, it is much bigger in Europe than it is in America, which is interesting. Detlef, has that been not your observation? Um, yes, but uh, it has to be bigger in in Europe than the US because our rules um, are so much more tight in direction of ESG. So um, the EU has given a hard commitment to reach their climate goals and they want the financial industry and therefore the investors to help them reaching these goals and therefore they try to steer um, with regulation the money in direction of green. Um, whatever this means for the um, outcome for the investors. I mean, if you look at last year, um, money was flowing into ESG products. So light green, dark green, whatever you want to call it. Um, but the best performing asset type was fossil oils. Yeah, So fossil energy, um, oil and gas. Um, so a lot of investors might have been disappointed by, by the outcome. Um, this is the nature of the beast, um, and we will see peri periods where ESG investing is underperforming and periods where ESG investing is outperforming. I mean, if you look on the on the corona crisis in 2020, obviously with the oil price dropping below zero, um, ESG funds had a, had a very good outperformance uh, in 2022, sorry, in 2021. Um, the the um, ESG funds had a good risk-adjusted uh, performance or a better risk-adjusted performance. Um, and in 2022, the, the, the um, winds completely changed. So we saw that the brown industries are, are going upwards. Um, and I think it is, it is wrong to say that ESG can't uh, be the... the, the, the um, um, superior investment style, um, because every style, think about growth and value, small cap, large caps, has times where it out and underperforms. So um, I hardly understand why ESG got blamed um, for the underperformance of last year. Yeah. And Ethan, do you want to just add to that? Yeah, it seems like ESG is an easy target. I think they brought up a really good point is that, yeah, you know, you know, with energy doing really well, traditional energy like the oil companies and whatnot, yeah, ESG is going to underperform. Um, but I think the other thing that people need to really focus on is things like voting, right? So how how is the asset manager a steward of your votes and things like that? So um, I think there might be a bigger focus on that. But yeah, it just seems like an easy target. I think ESG gets easily politicized. Uh, very quickly and it strikes a nerve with with a lot yeah. of people so it seems like the industry is still sort of maybe trying to figure out what's the optimal way to to do esg is it through these funds is it voting is it setting up as a non-profit you know all of these are sort of being tried but i think we're still sort of going through the labor pains to find out what's the best way to do it yeah, yeah. it's an evolving and a new evolving industry Look, thank you so much. We're out of time and you two have been amazing. I want to thank you for being my guests on this inaugural Off the Record. Um, this is Declef Glow, Head of Lipper, Amir Research at Refinitiv and Athanasios Sarafagis, ETF Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. Thank you for your time. And I want to thank the um, listeners. Thank you for listening at our first outing for Off the Record. 
Off the Record is brought to you by ETF Express in partnership with Trust Edge, providers of front, middle and back office software and services to ETF issuers. Production by Imogen Rostrin and Lisa Hines and music by Otto Balfour. Thank you to our guests on this episode of Off the Record from ETF Express and to you for listening. We look forward to you joining us next time.